Welcome to 80k After Hours. I'm Kieran Harris, producer of the show and co-writer of the Happy Birthday Song. In today's episode, Rob Wiblin interviews Marcus Davis about Rethink Priorities. Marcus is co-CEO there, in charge of their animal welfare and global health and development research. They cover interventions to help wild animals, aquatic noise, Rethink Priorities strategy, mistakes that RP has made since it was founded, careers in global priorities research, and the most surprising thing Marcus has learned at RP. And if you're interested in hearing about Rob's thoughts on the FTX bankruptcy, head on over to our original podcast feed where he's spoken briefly about his feelings about the whole thing. Okay, here's Rob and Marcus. Today, I'm speaking with Marcus Davis. Marcus studied at Columbia College Chicago and since 2015 has been involved in a wide range of projects related to effective altruism community building and research, including the local effective altruism network, Effective Altruism Chicago, and then at Charity Science as a project director and research analyst. In 2018, he co-founded Rethink Priorities, which does global priorities research, often in a fairly empirical way. Their reports cover a wide range of topics they think are both neglected and important, including animal warfare, artificial intelligence, climate change, and global health and development, among several others. Today, Marcus is co-CEO of Rethink Priorities, in charge of their animal welfare and global health and development research. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Marcus. Thanks for having me, Rob. Happy to be here. Okay. I, today, I hope we'll get to chat uh, more about how Rethink Priorities is growing at a, at a, at a pretty phenomenal pace uh, and how its uh, work is changing over time. But first, as usual, what are you working on at the moment and why do you think it's important? I'm managing managers, so I'm often not directly involved in any of our research projects. But some of the work we're currently doing now includes finishing up publishing on estimating the number mm. of farmed wild caught shrimp. That's led by Danielle Walthorn. Finishing up publishing a number of global health and development research projects we've done on behalf of Open Philanthropy. And among those, um, perhaps one we'll talk about today is the effectiveness of prizes for innovation. That's led by Jenny Kudamawa and Bruce Tsai. So I guess, yeah, as we'll get to later, uh, Rethink Priorities has been hiring pretty quickly. And I suppose so now you've added a level of management where you're managing people who then manage uh, individual researchers. Um, yeah, how's that transition been? Surprisingly good. I think before starting Rethink Priorities, I, I think I had an in of one, uh, helped start charity entrepreneurship. But there I was very much involved in the projects, uh, doing a lot of the research myself. And then as I got more management experience there and then moved to Rethink Priorities, uh, managing people... I don't want to say it came naturally to me because it did not, but it, it was mm. a smooth transition. And the, the transition between having one layer of management and having two layer of management, uh, I think, is actually the biggest leap where you need to have a good process in place, both for like operational things and for reporting chains, uh, making sure everyone knows this is the way we want to do things here and that those things uh, manifest throughout the organization. Okay, yeah. In a second, we'll talk about some of the specific kind of research that I guess uh, we'll call it RP, I think, uh, uh, going, going forward. Um, but what sorts of topics and questions, I guess, do you most clearly consider as part of kind of uh, RP's uh, remit or, uh, or kind of the area of specialization that you're in? Yeah, Rethink Priorities tries to tackle three big questions. So who matters morally? So this might be humans or animals, people in the present or future. Uh, how can we best help them counterfactually? And how can we get better at helping them? Uh, our research is used to inform uh, policymakers, philanthropic foundations, and other organizations to improve their decisions generally to make the world a better place. So with that, that's a pretty broad remit, and uh, naturally a lot of things fall under that umbrella. Yeah, that, that makes sense. So, so at the moment, are you mostly deciding what's research kind of based on what people are approaching you, asking you to do research on? Because I guess you're doing, you're, you're doing more of a consultation or a consulting style work now. Yeah, so I think 
there are multiple types of research we do. So um, when thinking about what type of research people take on, I think there's pretty useful, well, at least I find it useful to use a kind of model where uh, there's three different types of things. So it could be a foundational driven research. These are the type of things where someone has uh, the general sense that this is an important issue. A lot of scientific work goes this way, but doesn't necessarily have a particular theory of change or a particular end goal in mind. Um, no one directly commissioned it. They just think this is a good idea. I also would add not just the scientific work often play out this way, but I think pre our hiring in 2018, we think Prairie's kind of existed on this matter where Peter and I thought, hey, this is an important topic. We should probably do something on it. Of course, we had other goals too, like figuring out if we were a, um, a good fit for doing this type of work. But I think this is like one bucket. In this bucket, I would say, Rethink Priorities primarily does not do uh, currently. What we do instead is primarily think tank work or consultancy work. So consultancy stuff, as you mentioned, someone directly commissions this work. They say, hey, we have this question. We have this specific problem. Can you address it? Uh, and we try to do our best to like assess it in the manner they see fit and get them to the best solution. Uh, and then I think the, the third category here um, is a think tank stuff where we might have a very explicit theory of change, but no one directly commissioned the project. So this might be stuff where i uh, say I think our work on interspecies comparisons and more weight began this way, mm. where we thought this is really important. A lot of players in the space would also think this is important. No one said exactly I'm going to immediately update on this or here's the money to do the project. But after talking to important people or talking to key stakeholders, we come to think that this is a good way to influence people's behavior. Yeah. So so you co-founded uh, RP with Peter uh, Waterford. And I guess, have you split into two where uh, I think Peter's in charge of some research topics and you're in charge of others? Can you lay that out? Yes. Peter is in charge of our long-termism work and our survey stuff. And I oversee our global health and development and animal welfare. So survey stuff is very meta. It actually cross, cuts across a number of domains. Uh, so it might be uh, the EA survey itself, which we run, but also some group interacts with us. Hey, we want to run the survey. This would be useful. And also the, some of the more foundational questions I think I hinted on with Think Tank stuff where like, this might be a really important topic. Survey work might be illuminating here and we do that. On uh, the long-term stuff, stuff, I think it's more explanatory. Uh, we have an AI team, um, AI governance team, and we have a general long-termist team, which is taking, I guess, just a very broad umbrella, but basically anything that's not AI. I will fall into their yeah. remit in the long-term space. The split, I should say at the top, is uh, one of convenience. So Peter and I, it's not like we have like strong ideological disagreement about the nature of the work. It's just, we have to split the organization somehow, I guess, to run yeah. this large organization. And then secondly, I think Peter, I just practically speaking, Peter's day job before uh, starting this was machine learning. So I think it made a lot of sense for him to work on long-termism. Yeah, it's interesting that it's a little bit similar, I guess, to how OpenPhil has uh, ended up uh, splitting itself, where you've got someone leading the uh, sort of global health and well-being crew, uh, I guess, Alex, Alex Berger, and then you've got the, I guess, everything else, uh, including long-termism uh, side of it, which is uh, which is led by Holden. And kind of you've got a very, quite, quite a similar division. And I guess actually over there, they have someone else running the animal stuff. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's right. I think some of this is also like, we work a lot with OpenPhil. It's also right. more convenient, <laughs> like if I'm managing... Uh, one, two relationships uh, instead of one relationship, like it's much harder or we're constantly having to communicate back and forth about, whole, hey, have you talked to so-and-so about what? Uh, that type of thing would matter. But like I, even more practically internally, it's just way easier because uh, the nature of the projects uh, overlap better. And then the nature of the types of uh, researchers you want to hire or the way you want to approach your problems is just going to be different. Yeah. Okay. I, I think it would be uh, helpful to kind of lay out uh, some of the range of different questions that uh, RP has looked into over the years, because it is, 
Uh, I think it's one of the things that the most struck me and probably would strike other people landing on the website is just the yeah inc- incredible breadth, I guess, of, of topics that that you uh, are all willing to, to to bite off. I think uh, it's fair to say it's it's quite an eclectic range, <laughs> an eclectic range of, uh, of of questions that I suppose if someone didn't understand anything about effective altruism, they might find it quite baffling to, <laughs> to understand what, what what's the common thread that uh, that connects all of these different issues. Yeah, what are, what are maybe some of your uh, some, some research projects that you've been involved uh, in since since it was founded in two thousand eighteen? I've been involved in, uh, again, hedging in that I, I don't do, uh, haven't done direct research probably since 2018, really. I've been involved in work on invertebrate sentience, so trying to figure out which features invertebrates uh, have that might be likely to influence the probability that they are sentient. Uh, I've been involved in interspecies more weight, which I just mentioned, which is trying to assess for different animals or for different species, how likely they have different capacities that would be relevant to assessing how how um, how intense their experiences are, how how many subjective experiences they have moment to moment, and whether they have a unity of uh, consciousness. Uh, so assessing those type of things, but I've also been involved uh, in work on wildlife welfare, which I oversee. Will McAuliffe is our, our manager on that. Um, but on global health and development, I, I mentioned uh, some work on prizes we're thinking about, but other other projects we've done is on global lead burden. Uh, work on scientific capacity in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, work on better weather forecasting. Uh, so, yeah, I think that's a pretty wide range. And this is, I guess, not even including the long-termism stuff where uh, we've done everything from forecasting. Uh, we're trying to assess how you can do uh, forecasting things uh, or uh, trying to assess what the probability of nuclear war is with Russia in, in um, the U.S. or with other countries and how we should shape our actions based on this. Uh, so, yeah, I guess that's a pretty wide range of things. But as you said, I think the, the key factor here is we're trying to... Uh, I guess uh, much like other effective officers are trying to like maximize our return where we think doing things we think is really counterfactual and valuable uh, and doing things where we think, well, not just counterfactual valuable, but in itself high impact. Yeah, yeah. I guess, yeah. So on your homepage, you say that the key thing that you're looking for with questions is that they'd be really important, you know, really consequential, and that also that they'd be super neglected. Uh, and I think that that really cuts across all of these different questions, I suppose, especially the neglectedness thing that many of the topics you're you're biting off are kind of shockingly uh, neglected relative to their seeming importance, at least from a impartial well-being uh, perspective. Yeah, I think that's uh, one of the bigger things where I think particularly, um, I think Peter and I used to have a bit of a joke explanation for why we were taking on things was like someone really should have done this already. <laughs> um, so it's like the thesis that like, well, there are a lot of people spending money in the space uh, in global health development it might be hundreds of millions of dollars and animal welfare is not quite that much in long-termism. It's definitely grown in the last few years to be hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, and uh, with that type of spending going on, uh, it like becomes really important to answer some of these questions. So I, I think perhaps like one of the ones that really jumped out there again is which species are actually sentient or how many animals are there? This, this is even a more fundamental question on um, farm animals in particular. So you think about, I guess, before we, th- we started reading priorities, the biggest estimates people usually had was chickens, right? Uh, so chickens, uh, if you're, I guess, unfamiliar, farm chickens, there's like 70 billion slaughter per year. So that's a huge number, obviously. But pretty reasonable guesses were thinking, well, how many farm fish are there? How many farm shrimp? And it turns out Daniela looked into shrimp, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, and there's something like, I guess, if you're listening to this, you should probably sit down. Uh, there's <laughs> something like 10 to 60 trillion wild caught shrimp slaughtered every year in 320 billion farm shrimp every year. Uh, so again, for, for the wildcard numbers, that's that's a, that's a ludicrous number, right? Like it's hard to comprehend that. It's like 1,200 wildcard shrimp slaughtered per year per person on earth. Right. And like right. this type of question where like before the last few years, no one... No one had even tried to figure out what the number might be. 
Yes, like obviously the probabilities of different species there might be sentient, might be different, and like they might have different capacities as I talked about. But just fundamentally, just like before you try to assess a problem, you have to like know how big it is. And uh, in the animal welfare space in particular, I think a lot of questions are just like, well, no one's really thought about this yet because animal welfare is only as a more developed uh, discipline is probably only like, I guess, being generous 20 years old or something like that, whereas global health and development is decades old. I know the similar problems arise with uh, the long-term space where, like, well, just no one's really been thinking about this in the past. Uh, so, like, well, everyone's trying to start from scratch. Like, how do you do this? Totally. It, especially with the wild animal, uh, I guess, numbers and consciousness and, and welfare stuff, I, I suppose since this kind of got onto the radar a little bit 10, 10 or so years ago, at least when that's when I, when I first started hearing about it regularly, uh, people would say there's nothing really that can be done or there was a sense that the issue was really untractable and it was very unclear what the, what the next steps would be. But I suppose it is a very natural first thing to do is just collect the extremely basic information. Let's like count the number of animals and let's collect some basic facts about their, their physiology. It's, it's going to be very hard to build a credible field and seem like serious people who were studying a real issue, if even just the basic, the, the very basic facts that one would bring to the table to, to, to describe the issue uh, are not established. And, and, and it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, if, if wild animal uh, well-being goes on to become a serious th- uh, thing, which I kind of expect that it probably will, then these numbers are going to be referred to a ton. And the fact that the, these numbers exist, I think, is going to always be adding substantial credibility to, to whenever people introduce the topic. Yeah, I think that's right. I also would say... I was referencing animals that are affected directly by humans. But of mm. course, uh, that's not most wild animals. And uh, wild animals would out, like that 1,200 number would be more like 99,000 or something like that for every wild animal on Earth. Uh, so I think it's like a pretty plausible case that wild animals have most of the welfare in any given moment on Earth. Mm. Uh, and yet, not only do, like, I guess, do we not have like credible numbers, in this case, I think the global problem is going to be, this adds a, a lot of complexity of like trying to estimate the the total number of wild animals, but just fundamentally for like most mostly every species, we know basically nothing about their like their daily lives, nothing about their capacities, like basically no evidence on uh, like well how much of the time of the day do they spend uh, hungry or or thirsty or cold or looking for shelter? Like we just don't know any of those things. Uh, so like it's very difficult to assess how you should like do. Uh, if you wanted to, how you should improve their welfare if you just don't know anything about them. And I think that's kind of the world we face right now. And it's, I guess, one of the reasons why assessing animal welfare is like on our agenda. Yeah. So on the animal stuff, in preparation for this interview, I, I heard you talk a bit about um, RP's work uh, on trying to figure out which animals will plausibly be sentient, or at least build a database of different animals and, and the kind of the characteristics they have, which people might think are plausibly relevant to their, their kind of standing as, as, as moral, uh, potential moral, moral patients. So that, let's talk instead about a different topic, which I haven't heard you talk about, which, I, which is the, the interventions that people might plausibly consider trying to help uh, animals that are kind of out, outside of the traditional farming system that's, that's been uh, considered. What, yeah, what sort, I mean, I, mean, I mean, this is kind of always the, the, the thing that people run up against when you talk about uh, wild animals or, 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 I guess, animals that um, are being hunted or caught in the wild like, like shrimp in the sea. Uh, or, or rivers is that people didn't say, well, there's nothing that can be done, so this is uh, this 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 has to be a non-issue. What what kinds of things have you found uh, that might might plausibly be done? Yeah, this is a great question. I think in the short run, anything we do with a few exceptions, I might get into here are going to have some like massive uncertainties. Uh, so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm like going to suggest right now, like I have a great idea that we should like definitely do this thing. It's going to have a positive welfare impact, particularly given I guess the things I just said about not knowing much about. 
uh, the welfare of most species. Um, that said, I think there are a couple domains where you might have like a more um, robust chance if you want to to have a, a positive impact. Now, there's not just like the direct impact of like actually doing the intervention. There's also the, the theoretical impact of like finding out, well, this might work in practice. Uh, this might uh, lead people to understand that this is, a, I guess, a serious thing worth trying. And those type of impacts as well might matter. But just thinking, I guess, narrowly uh, in the short term aspect, like is this net positive for welfare? Uh, mm-hmm. Some things that might work are things where humans in particular are already uh, culling animals. Uh, so one project we have done uh, this year led by Holly Elmore is looking at rodenticides. So just practically speaking, many rodents are killed using uh, poisons that make them internally bleed to death, which seems very bad. Uh, so mm-hmm. like it takes many hours in some circumstances, sometimes maybe days. So you're thinking, well, if we could just do something, basically, if you're going to, you're going to try to control the population. You could use birth control. You could use just something that doesn't do that, like something that isn't that uh, possibly painful or last that long, but something like that where like you're not actually intervening in the sense of uh, you don't you don't need to, I guess, convince the population that you, you need to uh, fundamentally change the way you think about things, but you just need to convince them that like on the margin, these type of things might matter. And then that type of welfare impact might be significantly large if you're thinking about going from a position where Many, many uh, animals, possibly millions, are, are are poisoned to death versus having some birth control, where, which might mm-hmm. just have no uh, hedonic effect at all. So that's that's one type of intervention. Another type of thing you might you might consider is something where there's disease that's rampant in the population and is something we already understand and know how to control. Uh, in this case, Kim Cunnington is working on a project for us looking at rabies vaccinations for dogs. So if you're unaware, there are a lot of stray dogs in India and I think that they already have a, I guess, robust human rabies vaccine campaign. But one of the problems is dogs have rabies, they bite humans. So there's some type of intersection here between the welfare of humans and the welfare of wild animals where it might just, you can do an intervention that makes uh, rabies deaths. I also don't think are very pleasant. They last several months and can be really painful, but you could say prevent rabies, which would help humans as well. So that type of intervention might work here uh, again i'm not like for like basically any intervention outside of changing the type of death that's happening um, i'm not like confident in the robust positive effects particularly if you're thinking about long-term effects but these type of things are worth thinking about or trying and figuring out how you can do them and how you implement them at scale in reality as opposed to just theoretically sitting back and assessing uh well this might have this impact or this might have that impact so i think those type of things are worth considering and then there's the bigger picture thing so like you might say well there's nothing you can do now and the bigger answer i'd say in response to that is something like yeah it may be true but one of the things we can do is figure out what we should be trying to attempt so if you try to understand the welfare of these animals uh, just get gather basic facts about what their lives are like this could help you understand how you should do this or also implementing things like monitoring systems so one thing we did last year uh, intern who's now actually a ra of ours hannah mckay did was looking at how you might use monitoring of wild animal vocalizations to understand their welfare. So this type of thing where like you're not actually necessarily intervening right now, but it might set you up for some time down the line to understand the welfare impacts of different actions. Interesting. Okay, so the idea would be that you would set up microphones potentially in some habitat, and then I guess you can teach it to recognize calls of distress versus calls of pleasure or neutral calls. And then you can kind of just run a survey (laughs) using the microphone of how the different animals feel and maybe how their well-being is changing over the year or changing in different conditions. Is is that the basic idea? Yes, that's, that's the basic idea. Of course, in reality, it'd be very complicated. It'd be like machine learning and, but but the basic idea, yes, that's, that's the premise. Yeah. That's fascinating. Have you had any reaction to that proposal? 
Uh, I, I mean, I don't think we were the originators of this proposal, but as far as I know, okay, yeah. not exactly um, a tremendous amount of, uh, yeah, we're going to actually implement this. But I do think this is one of those things where the you develop the basic idea and then you can like refine it and you can approach it. And obviously, thinking about it at the abstract level of you could do this is very different from, okay, and now we're actually going to do this for this particular species mm-hmm. in this particular domain. Particularly given, I guess, again, even for something like this, you need to know what the cause of distress are. So like there have to already have been some basic science on the species in question. And if there's not, you have to do that first. And then like a couple of years later, then you can do this type of intervention or this type of monitoring. Yeah. Another report I saw on your website was about uh, aquatic noise. Uh, yeah. Can, can you talk about that? I hadn't heard of this issue before. Yeah. So aquatic noise is generated in a number of ways. And I think this report was assessing, well, could you reduce this aquatic noise, which could be harmful to animals? It could be uh, everything from like distressing to debilitating, depending on how loud it is. I think uh, some of the sounds are in the plus 100 decibels range. So you're talking like getting closer to like airplane takeoffs, right? So if you're at like close distance to that type of sound, like it, this could be... Is this, is this boats or what? Uh, in this case, I mean, sometimes it's uh, boats, but the particular instance I think that report was addressing was uh, looking for like oil. So like if someone's doing... a ah. uh, Oil exploration. Yes, oil exploration, where they're looking for, okay, there might be oil off the coast of this country. We want to, like, find out. And the way you find out is, like, you drill down into the into the seabed using, right. I guess, very large tools that make a lot of noise. And this could be really distressing. One of the biggest problems with assessing whether this is actually good to do is that we just don't know. Again, we don't know very much about the welfare impact of this type of thing on animals. We also don't know very much about how far away animals can detect it from because we don't know enough about mm-hmm their basic capacities. So this type of thing like could be potentially uh, worth pursuing, but it's also like massively uncertain. Like a lot of these things are in this particular instance, it also is the case that there's some, I guess, much like some of the other interventions, there's, there's, you don't actually just have to like argue this purely on welfare grounds. There might be good climate change reasons to care about this, or it might just be mm. like the case that, oh, this is necessary. I think the case study that Chimkis was looking at was understanding uh, historic case where the U.S. was considering this, and they might they were already like already had some type of exploration like this plan. So this might just be less duplicative in the first place, right? Okay, yeah. So isn't it super fascinating that because this is so far off of our radar, we could, in principle, be doing something that's incredibly noisy under the sea and deafening animals on mass, and we wouldn't even really ask the question or or notice it, uh, or, or potentially notice it, because we're not measuring. Are there? Are, we don't tell whether the fish or dolphins or whales or you know, smaller animals are becoming deaf because of our behavior. Uh, how would we ever tell? Yeah, this is bad. But I, I guess one of the things here, of course, is just like alerting people that this is an issue. I think this particular issue yeah. is something that the non-EA community has thought about. Oh, just say, just generally oh, speaking. Has. Okay. Environmentalists yeah, yeah. have cared about this for a while. Oh, I see. Um, and okay. this is something where like, I think we're... Uh, I guess, trying to approach this, I guess, from a welfare perspective and looking like what could be causing possible harms that we could possibly prevent. And come to, I guess, kind of like, oh, here's something that some people do already care about that could be useful. I see. Yeah. Okay. So a whole bunch of research can potentially be repurposed that's been used for environmentalist or conservationist work. Uh, I suppose potentially they've been doing work on calls from animals as well in order to tell how many they are and how well they're doing. And then this can all be uh, applied potentially to to well-being interventions as well. Uh, I mean, I guess I like hesitate to say like all applied, but yeah, like some some of it <laughs> yeah. definitely might be. Yeah. Okay. Let, let, let's back up and talk about the poisons that kill rodents. What what, what did that report un, uncover? Are there any alternatives? Are there any suggestions that can be made to people who are killing rodents at the moment? Yeah. So there are a number of 
possible like changes you can make here. So you could do uh, changing, controlling uh, what I guess humans have often considered pest populations by just reducing births, which would greatly reduce the need for lethal control means. So you can do this by like resource reduction. So this might be containing food waste. You could do it by habitat reduction. So filling in abandoned burrows, uh, filling in cracks that give access to interior spaces, or you could do effective birth control agents, uh, such as uh, there's a birth control agent approved by the FDA called ContraPest, which is designed, I guess, a similar um, fashion to human birth control. In this particular case, because of course they're not humans, you, you supply a bait and they eat the bait and then that uh, has birth control impacts. Wow. Okay. You, you kind of give them the pill or you provide food that has the pill in it, more or less. Yes. Do, do you recall whether the birth control method was uh, at all cost competitive with uh, these these uh, extremely painful poisons? Um, yeah, presently, there's not a similarly cost competitive birth control that's similar to the poisons. And this is one of the reasons why people use poisons. Nonetheless, I do think several uh, vocabularies have already banned some rodenticides that work through uh, anticoagulation. So because they're particularly painful and they so have brutal. off-target impacts. I see. Okay, so so it's interesting to write a report about this. What's, I, I guess, how, that, that product, where were you hoping that it might end up and how are you hoping that it might have influence? Yeah, so I think this is an area where if you, I guess if you talk to localities or certain uh, governments, I think they might be just particularly sympathetic on grounds that uh, this is harmful to the animals relative to something else that might just be, it's more expensive, but it might just be like slightly more expensive or uh, some other effort they could do, particularly if um, the only change you're asking is like, instead of using purely some of these uh, methods that might be particularly uh, harmful, you, you take some efforts to do things like fill in the, the cracks in your, your buildings or do things where you, uh, you use something like, I think there's food. a, yeah, restrict access to food. Or there's another thing, which is I think is carbon monoxide used in barrels rather than anticoagulants, because once you know what the burrow is, you don't actually have to use the most painful possible method. You could just use something else. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Uh, do, do you know if anyone has uh, made use of this report or, or has it been cited by anyone who's thinking about these issues in practice? This is very recent. So cited uh, might be too strong. However, I do believe uh, Holly Elmore gave an interview to, once say, Boston's NPR about this topic. And I think they were there was thinking about these type of things. Um, mm. But I don't know if this is necessarily going to lead to policy change imminently. Uh, but I do think that this is an area where I think there might be just like we somewhat sympathetic public support. This is also something we're investigating, what the public thinks about this type of issue. Yeah. I mean, I know nothing about uh, pest control. <laughs> pest control is a policy issue or a practical matter. It's, I, I'm guessing, though, I, spe- I would, might speculate that the conversation in the past before you have alternatives like this might go, this is ex- an extremely cruel method of killing right, mice and rats. And then the far more have to will, will respond and say, well, there's nothing, there's no alternative realistically. And so it just kind of gets shut down because uh, people will accept, well, I guess it's evil but necessary. But if you can point to reports saying, no, there is this other method, uh, it is totally scalable, it's like far better on, on welfare grounds, then potentially it makes it a lot easier to ban these extremely cruel uh, pest control methods because you can just say, well, it, it's a bit more expensive to do this other thing. But uh, it's like it's, it's totally viable. Yeah, I think that's right. Of course, I guess the the proof is when it happens. <laughs> so mm, yeah, uh, right. Okay, I, I'm, I'm I guess by nature very skeptical about predicting facts on this type of thing. And I like while well, I'm optimistic that some some changes like this might be made. Particularly if you imagine uh, if the effort required here might be something where instead of thinking about this as a intervention where you're paying up all, all the costs yourself, you're you're, you're shifting the cost to. Uh, maybe a local government, which is doing the, the intervention for you, then it couldn't theory even be, I guess, at least modestly cost effective. 
Let's maybe push on from these specific reports and talk about uh, rethink priorities, how it's set up, its strategy, its its uh, yeah potential paths to, to impact. Yeah, it feels to me like rethink priorities has just been changing a ton in the in the last few years, and it seems to have some pretty big plans for the future. Uh, t- t- yeah, tell t- tell us all about that. Yeah, um, we have grown from I guess ten people as of about two years ago, actually today ish, uh, to I think we have forty six permanent staff right now and twelve fellows. Uh, with a few few additional hires uh, we've made who haven't started yet in the coming months. So we're we're fully remote. So uh, we coordinate largely uh, on Slack and video calls. And the growth has happened, I think, uh, I guess in chunks, particularly earlier this year, where we hired a round of 25 people, including fellows. This was a lot of work, but I think it went really well. Uh, I feel very good about, I guess, where we're currently standing. And I feel that we're in a strong position, I guess, to continue to put out uh like high quality research and, and across a uh, wider set of topics than, than ever before. Yeah. Well, are you the biggest research org in the effective altruism community these days? I guess it's like competitive FTE or full-time equivalent staff, I suppose, to OpenFail or, or GiveWell. It's, it's larger than 80,000 hours, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, I think we're we're somewhere in there. I haven't checked the numbers recently. I think we're we're in the top four for sure. Um, and okay. I think yeah. I think GiveWell has maybe a few more people than we do. And then OpenFail, I think it's not just has more people than we do. They're also expanding. Uh, so yeah, uh, I think they're going to stay ahead for a while. Right. Okay. How challenging has it been to hire lots of people? What does what, what the process for finding people look like? Yeah. So uh, I think as you may be aware, this space is very competitive in the hiring uh, domain. Um, we don't do, I think, anything novel about recruiting. Uh, so we promote actually one of our best sources for uh, possible hires is 8,000 hours uh, job board. So we ask people exactly like, where did you find out about this job? And often, oftentimes that's the case. Um, but yeah, we, we, that's fantastic. We, we do that. We we promote the job on our Twitter, our social media, things like that. But we also do a lot of, I guess, one-on-one outreach. So we, we try to develop a list of like, okay, this person might be interested in this job, or it might be a good fit. And we mm-hmm. do like direct referrals. Like we'd say, hey, if you're interested, you should apply. Directly send emails to them. I think in this past round, we probably sent hundreds of such emails or direct contact through LinkedIn and uh, other channels like this. And I find that we find that pretty effective at finding people. Are you hiring kind of specialists who might know something about a particular topic to, to then go and work on that topic? Like someone who knows something about pest control, perhaps to, to do a whole lot of work on the animal welfare implications? Or, or are you hiring almost entirely generalists? Oh, yeah. So I think this is... Um, this is different across areas, but the I think maybe I'm I'm just hedging on that we don't we typically don't hire it to the specificity of a, a typical report. We might use contractors for that. Uh, actually, a, a really big project which we worked on uh, over the past year, uh, which maybe we should get to, is uh, more weight work that followed up our, our prior more weight work. So anyway, the the point here is that we've used 18 different people across a number of disciplines. Uh, so uh, veterinary science and uh, ecology, entomology, neuropathology, um, like, and for those areas, obviously we're looking for like pretty specialized people to do the work. But uh, at a more general level, when we're hiring uh, researchers, uh, typically hiring them more into a particular cause, though it might be the case that we're looking more for, say, someone with uh, some policy background, or we're looking for more for someone with uh, particular quantitative skills for a particular role. Uh, but just generally speaking, we don't have a lot of generous we don't have a lot of generous researchers at RP. People are fit uh, within cause areas. Um, I see. Yeah. Has it been hard to find? I, I guess you, you're hiring something like two people a, a month at the moment on, on, on average. Has it been hard to find uh, enough people who you feel really, really confident uh, enough in that you that you do want to hire them? Uh, surprisingly, no. I think some of it is that, uh, as I said, the, the space is competitive, um, I guess. 
one of the positive things is unlike a couple of years ago when we first started, I think we pay reasonably well now. I think this is something yeah. true for lots of the EA space. It's not something that, of course, that we've done the most. The space has grown a ton, and I think there's, I guess, better support for doing this type of thing. But yeah, I think the push to reach out to particular people we think are a good fit, and then also publish on like relevant job boards, along with hmm. being on your job board itself, I think that type of stuff help, helps a ton here. Uh, and then, of course, the filtering process uh, through the hiring, I think we put a lot of effort and time and thought into and to make sure that we, we, we try to find people who like are not just um, like uh, have the requisite skills in the sense of like they have the hard skills, but also have the required, I guess, uh, open mindedness and skepticism. Yeah, yeah. Has it been a big benefit potentially that being a fully remote team, you can hire people who are interested in doing this kind of work anywhere in the world and, and maybe people might be really interested in working for you because there's some other research organizations that, uh, you know, only only do local hiring that, you know, people would have to come into the office. And there's so many folks who realistically just can't pick up and move country or or, or move city in order to, to take one of those jobs. Yeah, I think this is a huge pro. Mm-hmm. So I think the cities with the most uh, RP staff in it, depending on how you're counting, is either London or Philadelphia. And I think it's five or six people, uh, Philadelphia area, like I'm a little bit cheating. There's suburbs uh, I'm counting mm-hmm. here. But yeah, that's obviously not most of our organization. And so most people are not in those cities. And uh, we mostly don't have people necessarily living in the, we have a few people in the Bay Area, a few people uh, obviously in, in, in London, but none of the, like the, the centralization, uh, we don't have as much. And on top of this, I, w- I would add that we have people working in, I believe, like if you include the fellows now, I, I, maybe I'm, I'm a bit uh, undershooted. So I, I'll just say at least a lot in countries. So mm. I imagine not all of those people could have moved even if we wanted them to. And I think obviously a lot of the, the staff doing this work find remote work itself appealing. Like even if we had a, a local office, they find the idea that they could work from home appealing. And I think it's just been a huge boom for our ability to to scale. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. I mean, I, I can see the benefits both of having a having a full office culture and and being fully remote but it's fantastic that there's organized i guess that there's some some range uh, of, of options so that people who want to work in an office potentially go to an organization that does that and people who want to be fully remote or just <laughs> uh you know live in sydney or something like that uh, can potentially get a get a job with you guys um the other big shift right has been that you're doing more consultancy work for specific clients but my impression is that in the past you were largely doing work with the goal of publishing it and then encouraging uh, people to read it and hoping that it, that it would influence their decisions but now people are coming to you yeah, can you talk a bit more about that yeah I think this transition is I guess goes from some of that work we did trying to put in front of other people was well received in that and when that happened I think there was a push from some people who thought, hey, they could help us answer this question. We don't have the capacity. We don't have, or we, whatever reason, don't have the desire to do it right now. Could you do this? And uh, we've taken on uh, work in, I guess, a, a number of areas that's like this. So we have some grants from Openfield uh, where uh, where we're working on open development, trying to do pretty consultancy, uh, I guess, pretty directly consultancy work with them. And then we also have, I think, some of our animal welfare work with their uh, animal welfare department is very similar in the sense of like, hey, they're interested in X topic. We, we can help you answer this question. Naturally, I guess one of the downsides about this is I'm being kind of vague. It's not telling you exactly what we did um, because yeah. a lot of the work ends up being uh, things that maybe has some private details. Uh, that's it. I, I, can, I can say, um, despite, I guess, the, the large number of things we've published, this year, there's, we're actually sitting on a, quite a large backlog of global health and development reports uh, that we're trying to get out uh, throughout uh, the back part of this year. So I think we've done maybe uh, a dozen or so reports and maybe three of them have been uh, published. Uh, so we, we're going to try to, uh, I guess, get that stuff out there. Uh, but the general, I guess, the general thrust of uh, doing consultancy work. So if you if you step back to that original framework I was thinking where we're trying to answer questions on like 
which groups are like more relevant? How can you like help them? How can you get better at helping them? Those latter questions, I think, get very narrow sometimes with a particular uh, consultancy uh, work. So it might be the case that someone says, okay, we are, we're working within this framework. We're, we're going to spend X millions of dollars. Uh, can you help us identify a particular intervention? Or, or, or we're working within this particular framework. We're thinking about investing more in, in the topic. We're not really sure. Can you help us? And in those scenarios, I think the the um, the return there is like pretty obvious where someone's just really okay. directly considering uh, spending millions of dollars in this. And if, if you don't take it on, often no one will. Uh, I think there's a very compelling case to work on these things, even with the, I guess, the sometimes the inability to uh, say things publicly. But of course, I'm not, I guess I'm not in this or rethink priorities isn't in this necessarily to only, I guess, uh, get our name out there is trying to actually just trying to generically do the most good we can. Absolutely. So, yeah, so the situation with some of those reports that were produced for OpenFill is that I guess they've, they've gone off to OpenFill, but they need to be rejigged before they go on the website, basically. So they need to be reworked for, for public audience and, uh, and, and hopefully they'll, they'll go up later in the year. Yeah, yeah, that's basically the situation. I guess, again, conservatively, a dozen reports so this year with, with several more coming. And then that's just on the global development. I would also add, even though this isn't necessarily my department, this is true, I think, in uh, the other side of the organization on long-termism in surveys, in particular in surveys where a lot of stuff we do is like pretty directly commissioned um, by mm. other groups, often EA meta orgs, looking for help on the messaging or looking for trying to assess what the public thinks about X, Y, or Z. And we do a lot of that type of work, but it just never sees the light of day. Totally. I guess, yeah, you, won't, you can't talk about all, uh, all examples of impact or influence that you've had, but yeah, what is an example of Rethink Priorities changing the decision of some other actor that you can talk about? Yeah, so um, yeah, given that caveat uh, that a lot of our most influential actions aren't public, I would say there are a few things that come to mind. So over the last year, uh, Neil Dullahan did some work on assessing a strategy with regard to farm animal welfare in the EU. Um, so he was basically trying to assess how should we think about this problem? Uh, are there any particular things we're under considering? And as a result of that, I can't be specific about which donors for pretty obvious reasons, but I think this this has probably led to uh, a million, probably worth about a million or two dollars in expectation and uh, additional giving opportunities. Some of our, I guess, on global health and development, some of our early work this year also helped uh, identify some promising opportunities for open for the fun things. Again, I want to be a little... Generic. But I can say, I guess, because uh, I think Jacob uh, Trepethen confirmed it on Twitter that they have a new global health and R and D role, and they he explicitly said we cited some of our some of our rethink priorities work in that consideration for that. Uh, so yeah. um, I think that's that's one particular place where this comes up, and I think this type of like very specific this grant changed. Uh, we made this hiring decision. Like those things are like really important, but it's also I guess I also would step back and say I think probably our biggest impact on the animal welfare space in particular is like, like the broader shift to like considering the kind of ignore issues of more weight or invertebrate welfare and saying these type of things are work taken seriously. Um, and over the last few years, I think uh, grant makers in this space have taken these things more seriously. Uh, it feels a little, a little funny to say, cause I, I, uh, I also have a, a night job as on the EA animal welfare fund. Uh, but I, I know, okay. uh, uh, those people take, take, it, take it seriously. And I, I think uh, some other grant makers do as well. Yeah. So uh, many listeners will have heard of Charity Entrepreneurship, which is this kind of incubation program for new charities. Uh, I've done interviews with at least two people who've been through that program recently, uh, Vasha Venugopal and Andres jimenez Soria, uh, working on Civita and the Shrimp Welfare Project, respectively. I, I think the people in, the, in that incubation program have definitely made use of Rethink Priorities uh, research over the years, right, to, to try to figure out uh, what interventions might be promising and what organizations they want to start. Yes, definitely. Um, I think 
I guess it's not that surprising if uh, you're thinking about starting a bunch of organizations and uh, a lot of Rethink Prairie's work has looked at like what's very neglected uh, and try to identify some space there. Naturally, when someone looks around the EA space and goes, okay, what needs to be started? Uh, hey, we actually know this area that no one's really working in uh, might be exciting and uh, some people take that up. Um, I think that's true. This isn't, uh, obviously, we're also happy to talk to who are interested in starting things up based on some of our work. Uh, we've done that before. I guess, of course, I, I also did that when, um, who feels like a lifetime ago when I actually was at Cherry Entrepreneurship. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, we, we're talking to people who are interested in starting some of our work. I think that's generally good practice. And in addition, I guess I would add to this that not, not only has Cherry Entrepreneurship done this, I think on the other side of our, my own organization, uh, we have a special project division, which is really just trying to uh, get uh, promising long, long-term projects up and rolling and out the door. Yeah. So uh, you mentioned a b- bunch of uh, examples of your research having impact from the kind of commission era of everything priorities, uh, where people are coming to you asking questions, and, and naturally then it has, uh, has influence. Are there any interesting examples of you just uh, putting up reports and then it influencing someone who didn't uh, necessarily ask you to do the work? Oh, yeah. So that, I mean, I guess the global development R&D thing I just mentioned falls in that mm-hmm. category. That was like literally the first report Peter and I did. So this would have been not even the think tank model. This would have been the yeah. like pure research. <laughs> like we were just doing a thing that we thought was promising. And this ended up yeah. leading to some some changes. Obviously, I also think the inverted percentage kind of falls into this, though uh, I guess there's a hedge there. Uh, this is a good example of uh, it wasn't like immediately some someone changed their grant making, but like down the line, but pretty clear that change. Uh, this also gets to, I guess, internal assessment problems when I start to think about impact of the organization. So something like that led to our abilities to do the follow-up work on more weight, which led to the large one-year grant follow-up we got to do the more weight project we're doing now, which is much more in-depth in assessing the, the philosophical and scientific literature for like uh, like more than 90 capacities for a range of species. And that all started because I think that path down there was started from our ability to do some work that people thought was high quality on a topic that no one necessarily requested. Yeah. So yeah, since it started in 2018, uh, Rethink Priorities has published something like 90 uh, research reports. Uh, are there any that you're particularly proud of or think are particularly cool that uh, might be worth mentioning? This is tough. Uh, I guess I'd say the biggest problem here is I haven't been cool in a long time, if I ever was. <laughs> so uh, my, my judgment... It's, it's cool to me. <laughs> <laughs> my, my judgment here might not be great. Uh, but yeah, I'd say, yeah. I'd say I'm, I'm typically, like, I guess, quite proud of the... the I mean, uh, I know this sounds very cliche, but like, the things I think really led to a lot of change, like a lot of impact in the world. So uh, like, there's some particularly, I think, novel... Uh, research, maybe, uh, I think some of the work thinking about uh, cultivated meat, where we're just trying to use some uh, interesting forecasting techniques, but like, it's not necessarily the techniques or things like that. It's really just like, did this really impact the world? Is it uh, moving people closer to the right direction? Uh, in that in that respect, I actually feel really good about the very sentence work. I really feel great about uh, some of our early work, just trying to scope out like what are the facts about uh, the different number of animals? Because no one really know, even though there are a huge number of like groups working in the space. I also feel uh, pretty good about, uh, though we haven't really started publishing the very big project I keep alluding to that we're working on on more weight. Uh, like we should start publishing that in the fall. But uh, I feel like this is really going to push people towards giving a better understanding of how to make these types of decisions. Yeah. Are there any interesting mistakes that IP has uh, made since it was founded, which uh, which you've learned from or other people could learn from? This is always a hard question. Um, I would say one of the things I think we were way too slow to do was to get a professional operations team. Uh, so when mm. we were at uh, seven or eight people, like it doesn't like, oh, maybe 
we keep doing this ourselves. I was like still doing the budgets, like running the finance stuff. Uh, we're getting some help through uh, Raising Charity, which incubated us. But I was still doing a lot of the, like, I guess, the basic operational things. And I feel that's probably, that probably was not wise. We should have had professionals uh, doing, not that I necessarily, I didn't make any like dramatic legal mistakes here. But I think one of the biggest constraints on growth was just like my focus, my, my ability to like think about the research problems or like to focus on only the things that are, like, are my comparative advantage. Um, and right. we were really lucky, I think, to find Abraham Rowe, who I think is not only excellent at operations, he's our COO, um, but he's, he also it's like mission aligned and wants to do the most good he can. And I think he's he's been just tremendously valuable at uh, building our operations team. Yeah. W- yeah. With so many people joining, has it been uh, challenging maybe to provide enough onboarding and mentorship and, uh, you know, a really effective management for everyone who's potentially starting in this job and that doesn't completely know uh, what they're doing yet? Yeah. So again, I'd say I think our operations team is one of the strengths of our organization and that we take a very deliberate approach to bringing people on board. Uh, usually the first couple of weeks before getting any like, oh, yeah, you need to do this direct research project. They're set up to uh, make sure they have the like basic setup where they get through like all the HR stuff, getting like legally set up, finance stuff like that. And then uh, this smoothly translates uh, transitions into the the more the particulars of their role, which we have a lot. Everyone go through process before me, you have all the managers of new staff go through process of figuring out like well this is going to be before people come on board I and mean, we also we, right. we have a i guess again not at all unique to us we try to have a cap on the number of people anyone any given person is managing so that it's not the case that someone just feels overwhelmed can't really address the needs of their new staff and we also try to make out time i guess when new staff start just to like have extra meetings with them to make sure they check in make sure they're doing okay i think those type of things have been really useful uh, again Nothing really there novel, but I think in some senses you like don't reinvent the wheel. Absolutely, yeah. It sounds like maybe rather than making things more challenging, it's in some ways gotten easier as the organization has gotten larger because you've been able to specialize in the skills that are your greatest strength and, and maybe like you know double down on on, on improving those and leave it, you can potentially pass off other tasks to to other people. Yeah, that's. I think that's definitely true over the last uh, few months. I think we hired Karen Greek to uh, lead our strategy work which had, I guess, up until that point, largely been driven by Peter, myself, and David Moss, who's our principal research manager, like trying to do this while also taking on our uh, normal managing responsibilities. Uh, having someone full-time in that role has helped a ton. Uh, similarly, Peter and I have recently hired uh, executive research assistants, and I feel fantastic about this decision. Uh, I, like, I, I can't imagine going back at this, at this point <laughs> to a world where I didn't have a, a assistant uh, and uh, this has allowed me to focus more my attention on the things I think that I actually have a comparative advantage on in, uh, I guess, less time trying to like manage my calendar or uh, or do uh, certain types of responses to emails or getting through Google Doc comments or that type of thing. Um, but yeah, yeah. G- generally uh, being able to specialize as we've grown, I think it's been really helpful, though there's, of course, the, the counterpoint of something like trying not to make sure we don't silo too much, uh, particularly given I think we have a pretty broad mission. Uh, we want to take the techniques that are, are, or things that are working from different parts of the organization and make sure everyone knows, like, oh, yeah, uh, just just learn from each other and learn uh, like what works and what hasn't worked. Yeah. Yeah, with an organization that I suppose yeah is looking into four or has kind of four reasonably different programs, how often do you bring everyone together, or is it maybe more kind of four slight four somewhat different organizations that that that, that don't necessarily super, uh, need to super coordinate between them? Yeah, so I guess on the in the day to day sense, uh, there doesn't be be that much coordination. I think as I mentioned, I want to learn from how 
like uh, operationally, like what works, what management things work. Uh, how do you? Oh, this was really useful in the hiring round. We should use this process. But on day to day, I don't think the animal welfare department, the long term department, don't necessarily need to talk to each other that much. Uh, that mm-hmm. said, uh, we do have like monthly team meetings. We have uh, regular socials. We have measure socials or man- measure meetings where people talk to each other, like exchange stories. And similarly, I think actually uh, in about a month, we're having a full team retreat. The first time, I guess, in person full team retreat. Uh, in, wow. in a couple it's years, big. yeah, it, it's uh, it's going to be a little bigger than the last time we had full <laughs> full team retreat uh, previously. Uh, but throughout the year, we also had um, individual team retreats. So I've actually been to a few. I went to Global Health Development Retreat in Frankfurt uh, about a month ago, and then the Animal Welfare Retreat earlier this year. But yeah, so I think this type of uh, coordination where everyone gets together, uh, we probably want to do it at least once a year, and then like uh, more regularly having like just conversations uh, remotely. Yeah. Let's talk a bit about, yeah, careers in global produce research uh, and rethink. Because I imagine there could be plenty of people in the audience who are thinking, you know, maybe they'd be interested in working at, 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 at rethink uh, one day or, or another organization doing doing similar work. Are there any particular things that you look for in a candidate in, in their CV or or in interviews that are an, an indicator that that would be a good fit for the organization or the kind of work? Yeah, so I, I can answer the CV question pretty easily because I give so little weight. To, to CVs <laughs> yeah. or traditional credentials. This isn't to say, of course, there won't be exceptions. Maybe you need to hire a lawyer. You need someone to actually admit it to the bar. But uh, to the first approximation, like I, I'm not really that concerned with the CV. Uh, I think this is uh, both uh, sometimes like, oh, is this the is this the right thing to be selecting? But then also experience of like, if we gave them away to the CV or beyond, is this actually useful for seeing who actually gets through to later rounds? And I think we found that's not necessarily true. As for the broader question, on uh, what types of, I guess, uh, skills or, or traits uh, we find that's useful. This is really hard to answer at a general level. Um, I guess, not very surprisingly, I find people who uh, can uh, think very critically about a given topic, re- really helpful to getting through our, our hiring process, people who are pretty skeptical of things, just uh, willing to consider the, the arguments for and against any given position. Uh, these types of traits come through, of course, and for a lot of our roles, uh, quantitative skills end up being really helpful. I mean, I guess it, it never really hurts to be able to to do this type of thing. And I guess also just some some broad scientific and statistical liter- literacy uh, ends up being really helpful as well. But these are like really high level, so I don't have... Uh, I don't think I have anything particularly novel. There's not like a uh, one one cool trick to yeah. get hired by reading priorities. <laughs> yeah. Well, how do you screen people then if you're not using the CVs? Are you doing something like work tests or maybe you know reading people's prior published works online or, or papers or so on? Yeah. So I, I guess I would say we're pretty um, work test focused. So uh, initially, usually an application, there's a initial prompts you have to respond to. Uh, we, we can look at these prompts and assess how, how well we think people did on them. We might set some bar as people get through that. And we often have a uh, either interview next or a skills assessment. They might flip order depending on the particular round. But looking at how people do on those types of things relative to how they do uh, on prior work. There, of course, there are exceptions here. Maybe someone is particularly exceptional. Maybe they ha- when the initial prompts, we actually sometimes do have a link out to some particular uh, aspect of your work. Uh, for example, in our hiring round earlier this year, we were looking for mm. an animal welfare researcher who's done some particular quantitative things. And we were looking for, okay, show, show some evidence of your statistical ability. You have to link to a paper you've actually produced. And we're going to walk through it later, uh, possibly in the interview. Uh, like that type of thing ends up being really helpful. But even then, I think it's not so much the, it's not so much like the, the rigor of the particular paper you, you put out or the, the certainly not the prestige of the particular paper you have put out, but more your ability to actually solve problems. 
Do you do interviews with people where you kind of uh, give, give them puzzles or see how they think through uh, a difficult problem on their feet in order to, to see whether they, whether they analyze problems in a way that you like? In some senses, uh, I feel like half of the <laughs> questions are yeah, yeah. ask people hard questions and seeing how they think through their feet. But I'm not sure exactly what you mean. Maybe you mean something closer to like uh, some of those uh uh, think some creativity puzzles, or maybe the more programming challenge. No, not, you know, actually, actually, not so much. Yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't super like the well, the Fermi estimate thing is now now super uh, overplayed. But uh, I'm more thinking, you know, give, give people a challenging research question, then say, well, you know, how would you begin to approach this question? Uh, how would you how would you break it down? That that sort of thing. Yeah, I think that's. I mean, I guess without getting too spoilery for my, for future yeah. in- interviews, <laughs> I do think this is something I I think is uh, valuable. I think there are times where uh, one of the best things you could do in an interview is to state a hard problem and say, literally, what do you think about this? And just like, stop talking uh, and, and yeah. see what they say. Uh, and yeah. uh, that type of thing can be really helpful. Just not giving direction on why you think, like if you have particular beliefs about this, why you think that, and then try and see who can come up with the best considerations and the most numerous considerations about one way or another, what, how to assess this type of problem. Do you find that most of the people you hire have a pretty large familiarity with the existing body of ideas and published work in effective altruism? Or are many of them just coming from, from outside that, that intellectual circle? Um, I'd say, I guess I, I would back up and say I don't have a good reference class uh, to compare it to, but I do, I do think it's a significant amount of people who have some familiarity with the space. Of course, this depends a lot on the particular role you're going to do. Mm. Uh, for some position, it, it's just it's much more relevant uh, if you're going to be uh, strategy stuff, it often matters to having a good handle on what types of things are already happening or what type of things have already been written. But this isn't to say that someone who's uh, more new to the space isn't capable of analyzing these things. I mean, it's certainly not to say uh, that someone more new to the space isn't capable of learning those same type of things. I don't want to wait too heavily or we don't want to wait too heavily on existing knowledge when that type of thing might be outcompeted pretty quickly by someone just like spent three weeks reading what um, the existing literature is. So this is always a tricky challenge uh, trying to figure out how to grade people who you know who have heard of, like who've been around the space for years versus someone who might have only heard of things a few weeks ago or saw our job ad on Twitter, for example, which is a real thing that happens uh, and yeah. trying to assess, well, where, where are they now? Where, where do you expect them to be in uh, six months? Where do you expect them to be in three years? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, for listeners, what what sorts of roles uh, might they, you plausibly be hiring for through the through the end of twenty twenty two? Yeah, so uh, as I said, we just did a gigantic hiring round. So, um, yeah. first first up, maybe, maybe we'll slow down a little bit <laughs> in the next few months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, not not a lot. So, uh, okay, I think the nearest soon hires, particularly I guess on my side of the organization, first and foremost, I think would be the work investigations work. So uh, I mentioned uh, more weight work. So this is a type of question where like more foundational thinking about uh, how should you assess interspecies comparisons? Well, these same type of questions come up on like, how should you deal with uh, cross-cause comparisons? How should you make decisions under certainty? How should you think about uh, indirect effects? Uh, these type of questions are like really big uh, picture things. And I think we're probably going to be looking to hire for uh, people in that type of, I guess it's funny to say that type of role because it's really broad, but uh, looking for to hire people to work on those types of questions uh, sometime early next year. And for other topics, I, I honestly I don't have that many things to say to you right now because we just finished the giant hiring round. There, there are a couple of things. Right, right. There's definitely things where I think if we had more funding, uh, particularly maybe on the survey team, we might be interested in hiring more people, but not like uh, at the moment. Yeah. Well, what about on the operations side? I don't think we have anything imminent on the operations side. Uh, we just, again, hired a number of people on the operations side. Uh, operations associate, we hired uh, CPA, we hired... 
uh, some people to work on special projects uh, to like actually implement things. Um, and we don't have any imminent things coming, though I do think there's a number of roles we may hire for next year. Uh, definitely no promises, but things looking to uh, possibly more comm staff, possibly more fundraising help. Uh, but yeah, these are things on our radar, but nothing, no firm plans right now. Yeah. It might be a bit too early to, to be able to answer this question, but uh, where are people tended to go uh, to work after after being at Rethink Priorities? Yeah, I think it's a little little early. Uh, Premature, yeah. We, I, think we've, I think a few people have left the organization and a few have gone to finish their graduate studies. So like that's actually by quantity, that's probably the number one, <laughs> the number one answer. Uh, and then uh, after that, a few people have gone on to work at other organizations, particularly I think Jason Shoecraft is at uh, Open Philanthropy now. Yeah, well, I was also Luisa Rodriguez uh, worked with uh, worked with you. I was asking this question in part because it's it's uh, in part because of the work that Louisa published while she was at Rethink though uh, that we decided to make uh, make her an offer. Uh, she, she published this uh, really interesting work on yeah risk from nuclear war that we've uh, we've talked about with her on the eighty thousand hours podcast. Yeah, and, and I guess I imagine for, for you know for many people working at Rethink priorities, especially if they're able to publish uh, the work that the, the research that they're doing in some form, it really helps to build up this portfolio to demonstrate what they're capable of doing uh, that they can then show to to any other potential people who might hire them in future. Yeah, I think that's right. Also, I feel very guilty for not mentioning Louisa. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, maybe, maybe you just assume that, of course, everyone everyone would know. <laughs> um, yeah, well, you, you just mentioned the issue of potentially being funding constrained on, on hiring. Uh, if you did manage to get more donations, yeah, what would you potentially uh, do with additional funding on the margin? Yeah, so first and foremost, uh, I think we use money to, uh, if we have the money for the purpose, to fund, to fund our survey team. I think they could use about $3 million through from now to through the end of 2023, just with the current team. Um, so in the could use new hires. I think we presently yeah. uh, have to turn down a lot of a lot of opportunities working with groups because we don't have the staff capacity and we don't have the funds to expand our team. Uh, a lot of this work is on meta work or long-termism, I think primarily like in those spaces, and we just don't have the capacity to uh, mm. take on projects. I think it's like particularly unfortunate. Like there's some like tension here between like trying to get commission work and people, a lot of people need our work. Uh, when they request something of us, it might be like really time sensitive. So we can't hire if like, we don't have uh, if we don't have time to hire and we don't have staff in place to like make it happen. Uh, so I think that's a bit of a tension. So funding to support that team would be like like really useful, uh, really uh, desirable. Uh, and then I mentioned more of your investigations. Uh, so we'd like to build out staff to take on those questions I mentioned. They probably could take something like a million dollars a year over the next two years. And then animal welfare, we could probably spend another two million or three million uh, over that period uh, on policy, on additional wildlife welfare work, on additional farm welfare uh, researchers, uh, invertebrates. And I'd say like invertebrates and wildlife welfare are particularly challenging to fundraise for. Um, and I guess, generally speaking, we could use some more generous researchers if like we have unrestricted funding. This is a particular area where like we do have a lot of questions where there are cross-cutting that could fit into, say, more viewing investigation type work. But there's sometimes other times where you just need a extra person on hand who's not necessarily committed to working on some particular cause area, uh, but we have the funding to take care of them uh, no matter what. Uh, so that's another area where we would spend additional funds. Uh, and then I guess finally, uh, global health and development, we could probably use about, I'd, I'd say for that, we're probably thinking a, a more about doing some, I guess, not exactly uh, consultancy work. And we could probably use at least uh, two or $300,000 a year for that type of work where we're taking on projects that might be uh, more think tanky than consultancy. I see. Yeah, well, uh, we've come up on time, but uh, a final question. What's a particularly surprising thing you've learned while working at Rethink? 
undoubtedly the most surprising thing I learned to rethink was the number of wild caught shrimp. Uh, it was just, okay. it was so yeah. mind blowing that like uh, when Daniela recently computed them, she said the numbers are like really large and I didn't believe them. So I computed them again. And I like, I saw the number and I was like, I also don't believe this. Uh, so yeah. so I, I ran it again. And this is one of those things where your expectations were just like, it has to be smaller than this. And it, it wasn't. Um, I guess this gets to the big picture question about it's just a huge number of animals relative to uh, the number of uh, humans alive right now. Yeah, it's a big world for uh, for better or worse. My guest today has been Marcus Davis. Thanks so much for coming on ADK After Hours, Marcus. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, have a great time. And yeah, uh, definitely do it again. If you're interested in learning more about the work Marcus is doing, you should check out RethinkPriorities.org. We'll add a link to the show notes. You could also check out Rethink Priorities' leadership statement on the FTX situation and read about how it might impact their long-term financial outlook and ability to keep growing. We'll link to that in the show notes too. And as I mentioned in the intro, you can listen to Rob's thoughts on the FTX situation on our original 80,000 Hours podcast feed. All right, audio mastering and technical editing for this episode by Milo Maguire and Ben Cordell. Full transcripts and an extensive collection of links to learn more are available on our site and put together by Katie Moore. And I produced the show. Thanks for listening.